and come this Lord's day to continue our study in the subject, the God of all comforts. Last Lord's Day, we discussed the fact that the Lord Jesus had no man to comfort Him as He went to the cross. And this was foretold by the Spirit of Christ to the psalmist in Psalm 69, which also describes how He would take our sin upon Himself and be treated as guilty, and how He would suffer all sorts of abuses from the people that were around Him, from the rulers and so forth, and how He would bear reproach, and how God would have laid reproach on Him, and God would have smitten Him. And yet, these wicked men weren't satisfied with that. They had to pile on their own personal sinful wicked acts against the Lord Jesus, and there was no man found who could comfort Him. That is, there was no man who could stand with Him and help shoulder the burden because nobody could help bear our sins. None but Jesus could participate in that awesome and terrible sacrifice that He made. No one could help Him to bear our sins. No one could help Him to be judged guilty in our place. He had to be alone in that. By being comfortless, we mean not that there were just no nice words to be said to Him. When we comfort people, that's usually all it comes down to is just saying some nice words, isn't it? But the Lord Jesus and each of us in times of trouble need someone to come along by us to help shoulder the weight of the burden, to help bear us up and so forth. And there was none like that for Jesus at Calvary. Even though Jesus comforted, did He not? The poor man crucified with it that cried out to Him for mercy and for relief. And so we concluded that the Lord Jesus knows experientially in His humanity what it means to be alone and comfortless. And that is one reason why He is determined that His loved ones should never be without comfort, should never be without a comforter. So we are comforted by the salvation of the Lord, by peace with God, by an eternal inheritance promised for us, vouchsafed for us in the Lord Jesus. And we mentioned several times over this series that the comfort of God primarily rests in His great salvation of His people from sin and death and hell. Now, I emphasized this particular aspect of the Comforter being one who is there alongside of us and substantially assists us in trouble and upholds us and helps us to carry the load. I did that because of the word Jesus used to describe the Holy Ghost whom God would send. You remember in John 14 through 16, he describes the Holy Ghost who would be sent to them as the Comforter. The Comforter. And the Greek word used there is parakletos. It is used both of Christ as our advocate, at least in one place in the Scripture, and it is used of the Holy Ghost in four places in the Scripture to describe Him as our Comforter, to be sent by the Father, at the invitation of the Son. 
the commentators and compilers of dictionaries and whatnot have given as this definition of this Greek word parakletos the following, summoned, called to one's side, especially called to one's aid, one who pleads another's cause before a judge, a pleader, counsel for defense, legal assistant, an advocate, one who pleads another's cause with one, an intercessor of Christ in his exaltation at God's right hand, pleading with God the Father for the pardon of our sins. So that is the application of that word parakletos to the Lord Jesus, that he is our advocate, he is our intercessor. And we know this from the description of Christ as our high priest, don't we? One of the purposes and works of the high priest is to intercede for the people for whom he made the sacrifice. And it was Christ who made the sacrifice when he gave himself, when he sacrificed himself to take away our sin. And so he pleads, he advocates, he intercedes for all those people whom he has died for, that they might receive the benefit of his death. And they certainly and surely will receive the benefit of the death of Christ because his intercession is without end and is always effective because the Father cannot turn his face away from the pleas of his Son. Now, the way in which the word paracletus is applied to the Holy Spirit is given by this commentator in this way. The word in its widest sense means a helper, a succorer, an aider, an assistant of the Holy Spirit destined to take the place of Christ with the apostles after His ascension to the Father to lead them to a deeper knowledge of the gospel truth and give them divine strength needed to enable them to undergo trials and persecutions on behalf of the divine kingdom. It was foretold by John the Baptist that the Lord Jesus would give the Holy Ghost to His people. And we read this in Matthew chapter 3 at verse 5. And this is John the Baptist before Christ has been revealed as the Lamb of God. This is when John the Baptist is preaching the baptism of repentance and preaching the coming of Messiah shortly and calling upon the people to repent of their sins and be marked out by baptism. Verse 5 of Matthew 3, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So John takes umbrage at these hypocrites the rulers, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees coming to the baptism of repentance. For no doubt they were not there to sincerely partake of the baptism of repentance, but rather to spy out the enemy, another troublemaker who had arisen to upset their hegemony over the religious and spiritual and political 
at least at a local level, rule over the people of Israel. And he says that repentance will lead to good works. And so you can't just claim repentance outwardly and continue to live in gross sin. That would not be a true repentance, but a false one. And he talks about the bringing in of people as children of Abraham who are not naturally the children of Abraham. This prefigures, doesn't it, or foretells the coming of the gospel to the Gentiles and the grafting of the Gentiles in to the house of Abraham and the making of people children of Abraham by the faith of Abraham. According as Abraham believed that all the nations of the world would be blessed by his seed, which is Christ. Notice also that John the Baptist foretells wrath and judgment to those who are wicked and completely bereft of any fruit of righteousness or fruit of the Spirit or the product of faith in God, that they would be cut down and cast into the fire. You see, in order to comply with John the Baptist's teaching here, there's a necessity of sinners to come to God acknowledging their sin, not acknowledging their goodness. And so all the people that came to John the Baptist, at least outwardly, they acknowledged that they were sinners and that they needed to repent. They needed salvation. They needed blessing from God, even though they didn't deserve it. In order to do that, you have to eschew your own works. But see, these people, they came to John the Baptist thinking how good they were, not how much they needed to repent of their sin. Because they were Pharisees and Sadducees, and the Pharisees prided themselves on keeping the law, or so they thought, and looking down on all the wicked people who didn't keep the law perfectly like they did, supposedly. These people did not eschew their own good works and count them as nothing as God requires penitent sinners to do. They came with their works on their sleeve. And so then there's the promise, verse 11. John says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Notice that John the Baptist says that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, will baptize his people with the Holy Ghost and with fire. But notice also that there's a promise of judgment to those unrepentant rebels. And he's, he's talking about them. As the story goes that Paul Wasser who's a famous fire and brimstone preacher of today, was preaching about the judgment of the wicked, and the crowd applauded. And he said, why are you clapping? I'm talking about you. Here, John the Baptist is talking about these people who he saw come, who were not repentant, who were proud of their works, relying on their works, denigrating John the Baptist and the people that listened to him as just a bunch of hicks and rubes that didn't know the finer things of God's Word like they did. And he says here that when Messiah comes, He will pour out the Holy Ghost upon you 
and also He will judge the wicked, and He will burn them up with fire. So before you can hear or believe the gospel, the good news, you need to grasp the judgment of God against your sin. And this is, of course, one of the failings of the modern megachurch, that they want to preach prosperity, they want to preach happiness, success, safety, health. They don't want to preach about sin because that will drive people away. That's one of the things you need to not talk about if you want to have a big church. I remember hearing a couple of days ago somebody saying that he went to a, a seminary class on church growth and the subject of that day was the words you should not talk about if you want to have a successful church. And one of the words he said was, well, there was this word repentance. You shouldn't talk about repentance because people don't want to hear that. That's negative. That's a drag. But you see that John the Baptist made repentance by the Holy Ghost the cornerstone of his message. Apparently his purpose was as God had ordained it, that He should prepare people to acknowledge their sin and to realize that all the good deeds they might think they did did not nullify or cancel out their sin, which needed to be repented of. They needed salvation from their sin. And so people who came to Him without that attitude, He was going to excoriate and warn of judgment. Now isn't it amazing that Jesus came to bear away our sin at Calvary. So the Lord Jesus was the long-awaited and much-needed solution to the problem of sin. You can say you repented of it. You can try to turn away from it. But who's going to carry it away from you? Who's going to purge your sin? Who's going to perfect you? And the sacrifices couldn't do it, obviously. And Israel is bound in sin. And only those who knew their sin and grieved over their sin were ready to hear the Lord Jesus when He came to preach His Gospel. Now Jesus promised that the Holy Ghost would help would help us in our testimony about Him in Mark 13 at verse 9. He warned His disciples, but take heed yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, that is, deliver you up to punishment by the authorities, Take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not you that speak but the Holy Ghost. Now this is an interesting text, because the Lord Jesus is promising that He will fill the mouths of His people under duress, in trouble, in persecution, with the words that God would have us speak on His behalf. The Holy Ghost will enter our mouths, as it were. The Holy Ghost speaks through God's people in times of trial and persecution to defend the honor and glory and right of the Lord Jesus before His haters and abusers. 
And this is a dear comfort that we need not worry. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't study and that we shouldn't read God's Word faithfully and that we shouldn't call out to Him for blessing and for understanding and all that. But he's saying here that it doesn't depend on your eloquence or your preparation, whether my name will be upheld and honored and testified to in times of trouble. It'll be the Holy Ghost that gives you the words to speak. And then later Jesus promised that the Holy Ghost and His people will provide to us living water that we should never thirst. Rivers of living water. Now you remember this was discussed with the woman at the well. And she mistook it to believe that it was going to be free water that she didn't have to come and draw out of the well every day. But Jesus was speaking of living water to the Spirit, to the person. Oftentimes, people become dehydrated, especially elderly people. And, you know, it's not like they're not drinking any water, but they don't drink enough and they get dehydrated. And what happens then? They grow weak. They grow weak. It's hard for them to stand up, hard for them to walk. And then somebody says, you must be dehydrated. You haven't been drinking enough fluids. And they'll give them some water or some Gatorade and they'll chug it down and by and by they'll be revived again. Water is very important for the functioning of the human body. You can go without food for a long time. The fatter you are, the longer you can go. But you can't go without water. That is the horror of being lost at sea on a little raft. There's no water to drink. If you drink the salty water... You just get worse. It's worse than drinking no water at all. And that's why they have to collect the rain and the condensation and the cool of the morning and so forth to survive. But being without water, water is an essential part of living, of staying alive, of being revived, of having strength. And here Christ is promising that He will grant living water to His people. And look at what it says in John's Gospel, the seventh chapter at verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scriptures hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now notice, Jesus explains the metaphor of drinking of Christ. And that is, he that believeth on me, as the Scriptures say. He that believeth on Me. That's what it means to drink of Christ. To drink the water. The living water that Christ provides. You remember in the Old Testament, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come unto Me and drink. And here is the fulfillment of it. The Lord Jesus promises that if you believe on Him, it will be the drinking of living water from the Savior. But notice, that there's a promise that whoever believes on Him, out of His belly shall flow rivers of living water. Not just a sip, not just a small drink, but rather an unending stream, you see, of living water through faith in Christ. New life by trusting in Jesus. Note that the promise is not a pond of water, a pool of water, a glass of water. In other words, it's not stale water with scum on it 
or algae growing in it or fetid water or nasty undrinkable water or water with lots of mud in it. No, it's called living water. That is fresh flowing water. Fresh flowing water. The Spirit is life to Christ's people. We read at verse 39, But this spoke He of the Spirit, which they that believe on Him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So John helpfully explains what Jesus is talking about when He says that He would give unto them that out of His belly, that is, the man who believes on Jesus, shall flow rivers of living water. He's speaking of the Spirit which they that believe on Him should receive. This is a promise of the receiving of the Holy Spirit. But notice that it is delayed until the Lord Jesus is glorified. And sure enough, we know from the history that it was after the Lord Jesus died and rose again and was ascended unto heaven Shortly thereafter came the baptism of the Spirit which John the Baptist had promised. This living water which the Lord Jesus promises to whoever believes on Him is like a river of water flowing from inside the person, from the heart of the person. And it is the Spirit dwelling in that person. That's what living water is in the Gospel message. It's the Holy Spirit indwelling the person who has trusted in Jesus. And the Lord Jesus and the Father send that Holy Spirit to indwell whoever it is that has believed on Jesus. The Spirit is life to Christ's people. God's Spirit in us, reviving us, regenerating us, making us born again unto spiritual life. You remember that Jesus had told Nicodemus, Except a man be born again by the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And of course, Nicodemus was confused. Apparently, he hadn't heard of what Jesus told the disciples or what John the Apostle told us in his Gospel that the Spirit of God comes into the heart and life of those whom God elects to be His own and regenerates them, brings them to spiritual life when they were once dead in trespasses and sin. So that Spirit in us revives us, regenerates us, gives us new life, new spiritual life, makes us born again. That's what it means to be regenerated, born again unto spiritual life. Our new life in Christ is not upheld by our own selves. You see, that's one of the things that people fall into is the idea, well, God saved me. Now, i gotta, I got to keep myself saved. i got to keep myself alive. It's all on me. No, the Spirit doesn't leave, and so therefore the life doesn't end. The spiritual life never ends. It's a spring or a river of living water. It continues to flow. And that is the Spirit continues to work in the hearts of His people continues to work life, spiritual life, in the persons who have trusted in Jesus. Our new life, spiritual life in Christ, is not upheld by our own selves. It's animated and purified by the Holy Spirit staying in us. He dwells in every believer 
As Christ promised, and John explains right here, he said right there, let's read it again, this he spake, that is of the coming of living water, this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. So there it is very clearly stated by the Apostle John. Notice how dead to Christ his enemies were. His haters were dead to Christ. They had no spiritual life in them. And we read this in John 7 at verse 43. But there was a division among the people because of him, and some of them would have taken him, but no men laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees. And they said unto him, Why have you not brought him? They were sent out to fetch the Lord Jesus to bring him before the tribunal, the religious tribunal, for examination and possible judgment. That's what these people were. They were like process servers or capious servers in our day that go out and lay hold of a person and bring him into custody and bring him before a judge. But these officers that went, when they heard Jesus and saw His marvelous works and His promises of salvation by believing on Him, they were aghast at the idea that they should take Him by force. Then when they came back without Him, the rulers asked Him, why have you not brought Him? The officers answered, never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Now notice the, the irony in all this. They appeal to themselves, that is the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rulers. They're the standard for who should be judge over the legitimacy of the Lord Jesus. Isn't that why they wanted him brought before them in the first place? None of them had believed on Jesus. Who are these ignorant officers of the court to take it upon themselves to contradict their commandment to bring Jesus before them for interrogation and judgment? Because they're the authorities. They decide. These men had heard Jesus' teaching and they were struck by the fact that He spoke with authority, as it says in another place, that He promised a river of living water that He promised salvation to whoever believed on Him. Well, these Pharisees and Sadducees didn't like that at all. You see, they preen over their keeping of the law and their mastery of the law and their good works in the law. And so they believed that they should be able to judge the Lord Jesus rather than Him judge them. But then notice that they said, this people who knoweth not the law were cursed. These people defied their order to bring Jesus unto them for examination and judgment. They just dismissed them as big people. They don't even know the law. That's their problem. They don't know the law. They don't intend to follow the law like we do. That's why we're here, you see, to make everybody follow the law. Because only by keeping the law can there be righteousness, they thought. But notice what it says then. Verse 50, Nicodemus saith unto them, he that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. So now here is one of their own who has spoken with Jesus, is intrigued by Jesus, 
doesn't yet believe on Jesus. At least, if he does, it's a secret. What does he do? He raises a point of the law with them. They just got talking about how cursed everybody was out there who wouldn't obey their commandments and didn't know the law and didn't follow the law. So he says, uh, the law says that we can't judge him until we've heard him. And you can't hear him because our gendarmes didn't bring him here to us. So you're stymied, you see. You don't have personal jurisdiction over him because you haven't brought him into your court yet because you've not been able to detain him and bring him into court. And you can't judge him already without hearing him speak, hearing his defense. And all of a sudden, the law means nothing to these people. All that talk about the law and about how ignorant the common people were about the law and how cursed they were, then once someone brings up a point of the law that they're violating, they just descend to an ad hominem attack against Nicodemus. You notice, art thou also of Galilee? Apparently they looked down their nose at Galilee. Apparently Galilee was some sort of rural area where nobody was sophisticated like they were. Everybody that wanted to follow the law had to stick close to the temple in Jerusalem so they could be up to date on all their rituals and sacrifices and cleansings and greetings in the street, rabbi, rabbi, all those kind of things. But now Nicodemus had the rudeness to point out that the law required that they not judge Jesus until they had heard Him. So the Lord Jesus later on reminds His disciples of the promise of the Holy Ghost. And we see this in John chapter 20. After He had gone to the cross, after He rose from the dead, listen to what He said. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when He had so said, He showed unto them His hands and His side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when He had said this, He breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now here is Jesus reminding them of His teaching and of John the Baptist's prophecy that the Lord Jesus would request the Father to send the Holy Ghost onto His people for all these purposes which we've discussed already. The coming of the Holy Ghost is shown with power at Pentecost, of course. This is where we see it manifest in outward physical signs and wonders. But Christ's promise is sure in these times also that His people who trust in Him receive the Holy Ghost. And out of us flow rivers of living water that is life by the Spirit of God. Christ promises sure to those who trust as He described to Nicodemus. That is, without being born again of the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And the Spirit is like the wind that goeth whithersoever it wills. You hear the sound and you feel it, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. And this is the way in which the Spirit brings regeneration, brings new life to people 
to cause them to put their trust in Christ. It is a mysterious and yet an inexorable thing that the Holy Spirit does to the people of God. And it's not in the control of mortals. We can't command ourselves to be regenerated or born of the Spirit. We can't command other people to be regenerated or born of the Spirit. It's a work of God by the Spirit. It's invisible to us. And yet, when it happens, we know it and there's a change, you see. We're brought from death into life. We're made to trust in the Lord Jesus. The Holy Ghost happens to us. He revives us. He gives us new life in Christ. Grants us faith to believe the Gospel, something that no one can do of their own. No one can believe the Gospel or believe in the resurrection from the dead unless the Holy Ghost works a work of faith in our poor hearts. Without the coming of the Holy Ghost as our comforter, we should be bereft and lost and helpless. So the thing we take away from this Lord's Day is that our whole life is wrapped up in the presence of the Holy Ghost, working life, pouring out life into us so that it overflows like a river of flowing water. And those who love Jesus and delight in His table, you see, that is, those of us who are here who love Jesus and delight in the table of the Lord, that is the Lord's table, and lay hold of His sacrifice as our only hope for life. In those people, there is a manifestation, an evidence of the Holy Ghost pouring in life into the people, into us who have come around this table and truly comprehend what the bread and what the wine remind us and signify to us. We've laid hold of the sacrifice as our only hope. We can only do these things by the power of the Holy Ghost within us, working through us. And it reminded me of a song that we used to sing written by Frank Butome. And I'll just read two verses. Oh, spread the tidings round wherever man is found, wherever human hearts and human woes abound. Let every Christian tongue proclaim the joyful sound the Comforter has come. Oh, boundless love divine, how shall this tongue of mine to wandering mortals tell the matchless grace divine? Thus I, a child of hell, should in His image shine. The Comforter is come. The Comforter is come. The Comforter is come. The Holy Ghost from heaven, the Father's promise given. Oh, spread the tidings round. Wherever man is found, the Comforter has come. And it is by the coming of the Holy Spirit that we are set free from sin, that we are raised into new life in Christ, that we are allowed to take hold of the gospel and believe it and trust in it and rest in it to let go of all of our so-called good works and trust only in the obedience, the righteousness, and the blood of the Lord Jesus. And next Lord's Day, hope to cover what Jesus said more about the Comforter 
what He would do, what the Holy Ghost would do in the hearts and in the lives of the people in whom He dwells. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table. Give thanks first for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. Oh God, our Father, we come to You rejoicing in Your dear Son and the sacrifice He made, the offering that You delivered up for us to be made in Christ Jesus. And that His body was torn and mutilated by wicked men. But it was done so that it might be made a sacrifice unto You for our sin and that our sin might be imputed to Christ and He might be judged as if He were guilty in our place and bear all the wrath that we should have received so that we are by that sacrifice who trust in Jesus cleansed of all unrighteousness. The debt is paid. Our sins on Jesus were laid. And so we sing a great praise to the offering that Christ made and to the symbol that He left us in this bread of His broken body. And we thank You that You have worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit to bring life into us, a river of living water. That is the indwelling of the Spirit who makes us alive according to the Gospel of the Lord Jesus. We give You the praise for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us on the night our Lord was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood shed for many for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 70 in the black book. With adoring hearts we render honor to Thy precious name, overflowing with Thy mercies, far and wide Thy worth proclaim. Number 70, Jesus, Thou alone art worthy.